Hi everyone, I am Dr. Patricia Campos Medina with Activista Rise Up. Today, I am so excited to have as my guest one of the most exciting new voices for progressive politics in New Jersey. She's a young woman that I have met in so many of our fights for workers' rights and for economic justice in New Jersey, and someone who is not afraid to speak truth to power. Imani Oakley, she's the host of Upfront Now Eyes on New Jersey, and with so many other organizations that we're gonna get to talk to about today. Imani, welcome to the show. Hey, Patricia, how's it going? Hi, so excited to have you here today. Oh, glad to be here. Yes, you know, when we, when I saw your show and I saw all the energy and the passion, I said, oh my God, uh, she did it. She uh, claimed her space and, 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 and took and, <laughs> and uh, claimed like, the ability to speak uh, in, in these forums. So mm -hmm. I congratulate you for that and I love your show. Yep. Um, New Jersey. So you are an example for me because for a long time I felt like, you know, frustrated that in New Jersey, progressive women of color like, like us didn't have a voice in, in all our media platforms. Every Sunday you will hear all these usual people speaking politics and analyzing. And I was like, where are the Latinas? Where are the African-Americans? Where are the young people? And mm -hmm. so one of the things that you did was to sort of claim that space. And so I am following your steps. I said, well, let me create it. And <laughs> you know, so I, I developed the show to be able to have these conversations and bring the, the voices of young activists of color and women who are doing this work. So let, let's, let's, let's celebrate that because I think that we are both uplifting each other. So it's election time, mm -hmm. there's a lot happening. So what is at stake for us in this election, Imani? Listen, the stakes are, are super high. I mean, this entire year should have shown anybody who was just like half awake, right? Yes. Issues that we have with the systems in our country, from everything to protection of workers, to um, issues around housing, to issues around healthcare. I mean, like this year really in a way that I don't think I've seen in my lifetime, unearthed all of those issues. And like, you know, this election, we can make, on a national level, right? I'll get yeah. to the state. Yeah. 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 We can make a decision to start turning that around. We can make the decision to be like, all right, you know, this is kind of like, you know, the warning signs, even though it's it, it was very serious this past year. Um, and we can actually start after this election really pushing towards fixing all of those things that really just came to light in ways that we have not seen in quite awful ways, to be honest, that we haven't seen. Again, I'm, I'm 30 years old. Haven't seen that in my 30 years. Now I've seen pockets of it, right? Like yeah. I've seen, obviously I've seen police brutality. Um, I've seen war. I've seen, you know, deep debt and uh, unfair wages. Seen all of that, right? But this year really showed how like, when things go wrong, if you don't fix those things from the get-go, a whole bunch of people will be hurt. Yeah, and, and I feel, yeah. little that government can really do about it. Yeah, I feel like some so many ways, like you said, we have not seen this level of of um, of hate. So no, of attack on our bodies. That I feel like our bodies are on the line as women, 
you know, as, uh, you know, immigrants, children, it's like our bodies is on the line. So like, I, how do we, um, how do we transport that message to some young people who perhaps still don't feel that this is as relevant or politics as they're relevant? I know that you engage with young people uh, mm -hmm. in the roles that you have with progressive Democrats, in the role that you have as, as a young woman of color doing this work, but mm -hmm. how do we transport that sense of urgency that this is serious where we are, then we sort of have to, how does this election matters and, and what do we do afterwards? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So one of the things that like I uh, should probably like get an award for is being a myth buster when it comes to young people because the truth is is that young people are actually very tuned in. Um, and the, the reason why they are is actually probably something that people don't think about immediately when they think of young people. But we young people are a generation of folks who basically every decade or every five years, every three years, every one year of our life have seen some type of major violence, some type of major crisis, some type of major you know, um, war. Like we've seen that our entire lives. So we are actually very tuned in because frankly, we don't have a choice, right? We would love to be able to just like sit back and just be like, ah, I'm just gonna forget about all of this. But you know, when it comes to student loan debt, when it comes to, um, like fair wages for workers, especially for you know young folks who went to college, did everything the right way, uh, and then still came out getting paid really, really like small wages, or just like going into the gig economy because folks wouldn't hire them, right? Like so, you know, one myth about young folks is that they aren't tuned in, but they are actually very tuned in. the The issue comes in when politicians think that they can essentially make promises that they're not going to keep or kind of say, give young people like halfway what they want and not the full throttle thing. Yeah. One thing that I think politicians really underestimate and haven't really just like, it just hasn't hit their brains yet is that millennials are now the largest voting block. We, uh, I believe as of 2020, as of this year, yeah. uh, we surpassed baby boomers as the largest voting block. So if you want to appeal to the largest voting block, you need to start making promises that really speaks to that block. And you know, when they don't, you have a whole flock of young, very tuned in, and frankly, very educated yeah. uh, voting, a voting block that you know just is not going to be energized because politicians are not speaking to them. So really, if we want to get the young folks involved, we have to start pushing towards towards those really quite frankly, left policies in the US, although you know internationally it's pretty moderate stances, yeah, exactly. um, we gotta start pushing towards those. And politicians really have to start embracing them um, sooner than later. I, and I think that you know, what we have seen, um, because of this movement of young people around Black Lives Matter and demanding accountability of police and respect for Black bodies, we've seen this movement to change, you know, from them to demand more from from politicians on the issue of economic and social justice, and also on issues of um, you know of immigration reform, of economic justice, of investment. So I think when we move the needle in trying to get the attention at the national level, right? So now, how do we? You know, next week is elections. So I always I, I tell people we have to vote next week. But we have to keep building after that. Uh, so it's not just about making the 
making Biden or whoever have a promise of policy, but it's also having a plan to push them in those policy, those promises into policy. So what is the plan? Like, how do we bring uh, that energy or the movement into uh, into policy and then legislation uh, mm -hmm. after, you know, hopefully we're going to get the vote out next week and then we got to get to work. On right, policy. right. So, I mean, with my work that I do with PDNJ, you know, what our big emphasis on is on getting good people in office. Because, you know, a lot of voters, um, young, old, or what have you, you know, in the West Coast, Central America, East Coast, the South, a lot of people come out to vote for the presidential, but then in midterms and other elections in between, you know, you don't see that same amount of turnout. Yeah. Um, what we're trying to do as an organization is get really good progressives in office, those who can speak to the issues that uh, folks want to be changed today. Um, and that needs to start after the election, right? It can't be kind of like we wait the next four years and see if we can relitigate whether, you know, we can have representation in office that is truly progressive, right? That has to start November 4th. <laughs> no, November 4th, we yeah. start yeah. thinking about who we can replace because some people need to be replaced. It's true. Some people have been there way too long and are frankly, the their being there that long and not legislating and creating policy that really helps people is why we ended up here in the first place. So really what we need to do after that is start really pushing for progressives who are represent uh, who represent in all forms, whether that's race or just background, economic background, et cetera, experience, et cetera, who really represent the people to make policy for them because they intimately understand what they need. It's not just a matter of just like, oh, I'm just like talking and listening to people. That's part of it. But another part of like really making good policy is having an intimate understanding of how that policy will change people's lives. And so with my work with PDNJ, you know, that's what we're pushing towards. We're pushing towards running real progressives for office. Um, help them win in New Jersey though, because it's always so hard to break into the party system in the counties and to like figure out the ballot system and how do we tackle that structural problem, but still, you know, understand that we're Democrats and we're hoping to make the Democrat more progressive. So how do we uh, provide spaces for young people to jump in there and like say, I'm running and I'm gonna win and this is my plan? Mm -hmm. Well, the most critical thing that we can absolutely do is to abolish the line in New Jersey. For those that don't know, New Jersey is the only state that has a ballot structure um, that essentially what it does, what the psychology of it to a voter, what it does to the psychology of a voter is that they look at it and the way it's structured makes them think that real Democrats or good Democrats are in one column and all the other bad Democrats are in another column. And that's not necessarily the case, right? Sometimes, like for example, uh, in this past election, you had Bernie like somewhere by himself, and then you had like a whole line of establishment Democrats. Bernie is great. Bernie is the one who made Medicare for all a um, you know a household conversation. Bernie is the one who made these economic issues a household conversation. Uh, Bernie Sanders is the one who made um, diplomacy as opposed to war household conversations. It's a great Democrat. Yeah. But, you know, he's he was placed somewhere weird and random on the ballot and a line of Democrats were placed in, in one spot. Now, what this 
does is that gives people who are on that line, it gives them at least, at bare minimum, a 35 percentage advantage before they even announce, just by them being on that line, not even campaigning, not talking to voters, not having a platform, just by them being there, it's worth at minimum a 35% advantage. And the way they get on that line, it's not that voters vote for them to be on the line and voters vote to see who will be there. They're chosen by county committee people and by party insiders. And essentially, you know, that makes it very, very hard for young people to run and win makes yeah. it extremely hard for progressives to run and win, makes it extremely hard for anyone, people of color, women, et cetera, who historically do not have these political connections to run and win races in New Jersey. So the really the most important thing we have to do right now is to get rid of the line. Right now, PD um, and Jay has a lawsuit going. Uh, if you want to donate to that, you can go to our website and okay. donate to that legal fund because we are um, funding a lawsuit to get rid of the line. The other way is to pressure your legislators. That's really hard because all the legislators who are currently in their seats right on the line. <laughs> but you know, you never know with enough public pressure, maybe we can get something done. Because that's the other way that you can get rid of the line. Um, and then the third way is just to generally educate people, educate your friends, educate your family, you know, to post about it online. Just overall get the word out about the line because honestly, it's, you know, the establishment's best kept secret that so many people don't know about it. Um, yeah. Those are the ways folks can definitely get involved to uh, abolish the line in New Jersey. And it gives them, it's not just yeah, the 30% in terms of voters, but it means that they don't have to spend that extra money and resources to be able to talk to, to, to those voters, right? They just, they just there. And for challengers, you know, it's di very difficult to, uh, to raise money to be able to challenge and overcome that 30% uh, advantage that they have. Another issue that I, you know, that you and I uh, talked uh, tried worked on uh, together for a little while. What's this whole issue of uh, of the of the limitations or perhaps the, the issues that women or young women have entering politics in New Jersey mm -hmm. around issue of sexual harassment, around the issue of lack of opportunities to have the kind of jobs in politics that uh, that prepares them to run for office and have access to campaign money. So mm -hmm. in that issue. Like, you know, we're so behind in New Jersey and, and I, I was hoping, you know, we got into the mode of the pandemic and we couldn't have in that debate. But there wasn't voices of young women of color in that debate. And it's sort of how do we change that dynamics to say it's not just the gender, it's also the, you know, the, the, the multiplicity of issues that we face, beginning with the fact that we don't really have I always used to say I couldn't work for free on a campaign. I always had to have another job because I needed to earn some money. Yeah. So how do we address that issue for young women to be able to enter into New York City politics? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that I've found you know, working in New Jersey politics is that progressive women of color flee this state like I've never seen them flee any yeah. other way, right? And yeah. it's not, a matter of, you know, they just like get tired, they get bored, et cetera, or they just have like necessarily better opportunities. It's because when they try to push a progressive gen agenda, they get heat from all sides. 
they get heat from all sides. And sometimes even, you know, from some of the uh, old guard of the progressive movement. And that absolutely has to stop. If we want to keep women of color in politics here, if we want to grow the progressive space here in New Jersey, we need to be working with women of color and not, you know, only expecting them to kind of play the kind of the tokenized role, essentially, that they say what you want them to say, when you want them to say it, how you want them to say it. Yeah. That's not leadership. And that's not solidarity, frankly. Um, solidarity is really sitting down with each other, understanding each other, coming together where you where it makes sense, right? Where you are all are on the same page and where for one reason or another, you can't get on the same page, allowing people to do their thing over there and you do their thing over there, as long as it's going towards the greater good. And we really, you know, we need to recognize that with the progressive folks in New Jersey. Yeah. Now with the, and that's more so on the grassroots side, on the political side, frankly, I mean, <laughs> the political side in New Jersey is very big on what they call loyalty, which yes. essentially means you can be quiet and be a good yes man or yes woman. That does not fly with women of color, especially women who are progressive, right? Because the thing about it is that women of color, um, and especially black women, and I'm sure you could speak more to uh, you know Latino women on this, we are highly educated. We have to work twice as hard, sometimes three times as hard to get half of what people get. That's a, that, it's, a, it's like a quote, but it's like it's a real thing. So by yeah. the time we get into the room where decisions are made, we actually are experts in our field where you know we were surrounded by a bunch of typically white men who really just got that job because mommy or daddy was a donor, or you know, you just were grown up in that space, so people knew you and gave you a job. But women of color, we really know what we're doing. So we're not just going to shut up and pretend like we don't. And I think what the politicos in New Jersey have to realize is that that's an asset. Blind loyalty is not an asset. Expertise is an asset. And no. they really need to tap in that and accept that if, yeah. if you want to you know, get more women of color in this space. Yeah. I always... I always tell a young women who want to enter into politics, so perhaps get an opportunity because we get that opportunity. The problem is that we don't get the support mm -hmm. or the resources to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you get put into a, a room and you say, get this done, and then you don't have the money and you don't have the access to get it done. And then you're like, you know, so I always tell women, make sure you make it clear what is it that you need to get the work done and put it on writing and make it known because once it comes time to hold somebody accountable, you wanna say, well, I could have done all that, but you didn't give me the money to get it <laughs> to get it done. Um, and it, you know, because I think that that's how I uh, I sort of survive in this business. You know, like you, I am super educated. I usually have more degrees than anybody in, in some of those campaigns. And I always felt like, you know, like I always had to uh, like, convinced them that somehow I could do it. So it's, it's, it's surprising that we're still in that moment uh, uh, in, in politics in New Jersey. But let me, you know, I know a lot about what you do, what you, you know, all the, all the, uh, all the great, the courageous things that you've done in politics in New Jersey at such a young age. But how did you get started in, in being a progressive? Like, how, uh, you know, I know you went to Howard University, but you came back. What is your start uh, um, for progressive politics for you and what drives you? 
Yeah. So for like what, my overall start in politics in general in New Jersey was I actually worked for Cory Booker in his district office uh, when I first came back to New Jersey. Um, and then, you know, what happened was I basically kept getting more pushed left and left and left uh, with regards to where I worked, uh, because where, where I was internally was that I was a full on progressive. Like I was I supported Bernie in 2016. Like I was like full throttle there. I was sold. But, you know, one of the things is when you're when you're a young person just getting a job, you got to kind of figure out where you can get your foot in the door and then grow from there. So I got my foot in the door in in Booker's office. But, you know, just to be frank and, and honest with you, uh, I did not like some of the hesitation that that office had with regards to going full throttle with progressive uh, policy. Now, there are some things that really came out that were pretty progressive, like the federal jobs guarantee and, and, and baby bonds. Right. But they weren't leaned into. Um, and in my opinion, you know, this past uh, presidential primary for the Democrats had Bernie Sanders, who I like to call like the OG progressive, with, like he had that brand. Yeah. He had Elizabeth Warren, who had the brand of the woman progressive. And I felt like the uh, the lineup was just begging for a solid progressive of color. Yeah. I felt as though, you know, Cory Booker had the money, the name recognition, all the things that he would need to really push for that. And he didn't. And, you know, that's what made me start getting on this path to really pushing towards finding progressive spaces and being able to work in them. Mm -hmm. um, I went on to then become a campaign fellow for uh, Movement School, which is an organization uh, that actually I currently work for, um, that their entire mission is to teach marginalized folks, uh, especially black and brown folks, how to run campaigns and specifically progressive campaigns at a very high expert level. Um, and I was a fellow with them. And from there, it was just like, you know, I made my way into a bunch of progressive spaces and, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, you know, first, my first step was, was working in Booker's office um, and then just kind of seeing like, eh, this isn't really for me. Like, I really want to push towards the future and then yeah. going and, and making the leap to, to do that. Yeah, I feel like, you know, the big shift in progressive politics in the country, I think, um, is that we have seen how being middle of the road and just accepting the status quo really got us into this mess. So I think that the shift is that during the 90s, you know, 90, maybe early 2000, was like the Bill, the Bill Clinton policies were like middle, middle of the road. Like how can we work with, uh, you know, giving some tax breaks and enacting some fair policies. But so this middle of the road, um, road that basically got us to this economic mess. So yeah. coming to out of the 2000s, people didn't want middle of the road anymore. They want a vision. They want new ideas, new policies, mm -hmm. because how are we going to get out where we are? So yeah. I think that that's why people like Bernie, who inspired a new way of thinking, and, and Elizabeth Warren too, but she was very courageous on all the things that she did basically open up the space for all of us to say, wait a minute, the middle of the road ain't so cool anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I, I might even go all the way back to Obama. I mean, there, of course, there were policy mistakes that the Obama administration made, right, that really didn't get solved by the time we got to 2016 and, and that whole race. Yeah. But, you know, for the time, Obama was like, that was, that was like, that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was uh, <laughs> I always, I always tell people, you know, folks 
never believed that there could be a black president. Like there's literally a movie called, um, oh, it's called like some head of state or something like that with uh, with Chris Rock. And it's, it's a comedy movie about a black man president. And I always point that out to people where it's like, so little people had faith that a black man could be president in this country that they even made comedy movies about it, right? Yeah. So when Barack Obama came along, that like blew open the possibilities in people's minds. Like I would argue without a Barack Obama, you don't get a Bernie Sanders um, at that level, at the presidential level. You don't get AOC and all the rest of the squads. Like you don't get that without the Obama win. And, and that was, I think that was a turning point, I think, for a lot of folks. Again, not discounting, you know, the mistakes that were made in that administration, right? But purely politically and symbolically, what Obama represented was incredibly important to, for us to get where we are now, having these conversations um, and pushing more and more towards the left. And giving power to the voice of minority voters and the and the and, and black voters and the multiracial coalition. I totally agree with you because it was the first time that we saw ourselves being up there uh, as the head of the most powerful country in the world. So I totally agree with you. I think that what we, the lesson we learned from the Obama years and he you know we were able to get obamacare and get more people covered we were able to get some critical things for our community i think the lesson we all learn as activists as progressives is that we stop organizing at the ground level we stop uh, organizing our communities to keep uh, uh to keep him accountable but also keep the, the system accountable to what the people were expecting. So I hope that we have learned a lesson that we cannot leave, leave uh, if Biden gets elected, that we cannot just hope that he will change the vote, right? We have to like be there peddling with him. So are we prepared, do you think, for for to take over and continue the movement after after November 3rd so that we can force those policy changes that we were not able to uh, to finish and complete under Obama? Yeah, no, I definitely think people are ready. I think people are ready. And and let me actually parse that out a bit because, you know, there are, I'll, I'll be honest with you, there are some people that are just upset at Trump because he brings out such bad things in this country that they're forced to pay attention to these bad things. Because a lot of the stuff that, you know, Trump has done that's bad has been stuff that to one degree or another has already been happening in this country. He just like turned it up a thousand and like, you know, just pointed a mirror to America and be like, this is all the crud that we have got to care of. Information to people to be, to say things that we're thinking. No, exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, I do expect for some folks to kind of turn back off when it comes to that because they'll think, oh, you know, somebody else is in office, um, Biden's there, like, I don't even have to pay attention to anymore. Like, I saw somebody the other day tweet something like, you know, I can't wait till this is over so I can go back to not paying attention, right? And it's like, so some folks are in that mindset. But I think with the grassroots and, and the activist spaces um, and even like the progressive political spaces, we're ready, man. Like we are, we're, we're ready, ready to go. go. <laughs> we are very ready. <laughs> so we know what's at stake on November third at the national level. I think yeah. we know that. What's at stake for New Jersey progressives here in New Jersey? What mm -hmm. do we have to do to move the boat forward in progressive politics in, in New Jersey? Yeah, you gotta get rid of the line. We gotta <laughs> get rid of the line. That's really the biggest barrier because if you actually look at our demographics. And if you look at even when you take polls of like um, just like progressive policies and initiatives, 
we, the, the people, like the voters love those things, right? Like it's, it's, it's not debatable when you actually look at the data and things like that. Um, we could be comparable to say like New York City or um, sorry, places in California when it comes to how far along we are with progressive conversations and uh, progressive elected officials. But that huge boulder of a barrier called the ballot line is really, really stopping that. And, you know, like one of the things that, um, you know, the powers that be in New Jersey, the party boss that try to do from time to time is like put up somebody who can sell progressive. Yeah. But yeah. when it comes time to those backdoor deals and those conversations, they fold <laughs> and they're not really out there and fighting like full throttle for the people. They're fighting full throttle for their career. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't need that. Right. Yeah. And I want folks to be on the lookout for that. We need folks who will really get in there and go to bat for the people. And the only, you know, well, not the only way, but like a critical step in getting that is getting rid of the bat line. Yeah. I also know that you are a big uh, advocate for decriminalization of marijuana. And I know that that's on the ballot. Just tell us why we need to vote uh, for, for, uh, for the ballot question. Oh my. Yeah, absolutely. So with marijuana, right, there was a bill and the bill was actually pretty decent. It had like some things in it about expungement. It had things about it, about like, you know, partial um, minority or marginalized groups ownership of dispensaries, et cetera, et cetera. Had some pretty decent things in it. Wasn't perfect. Could have been better, but it was pretty strong for like a first stab at it. Yeah. That was essentially blocked because we do not have <laughs> progressive elected officials by and large in New Jersey. Um, and then the conversation just got broken down and broken down and broken down until it was like almost, we didn't, we weren't gonna get legalization at all. We were just gonna do decrim. Yeah. Now, for anybody who's been paying attention to other places in the country where this has happened, decrim um, has actually not worked out very well for states that did that and didn't do legalization uh, for a number of reasons. Yeah. In my opinion, the most important reason is that you do not get the tax revenue from sales that you need to rebuild communities that were devastated by the war on drugs. Yeah. You need that cash flow to be able to rebuild, and that is essential. So what happened was the legislature decided to say, like, here, let's just give it to the people and do a referendum since we can't get it together. Uh, and now it's on the ballot and it's on the back side of the ballot. So, you know, anybody watching this show, if you haven't voted yet, you know, make sure you flip over your ballot and vote for that. But what this will essentially do and hopefully it passes is that it will now force our legislators to actually like regulate because it, it, it has to at this point. The people have to get to work. Right, right. So this is this is a this is not the end all be all, right? I want to make that very clear to anybody watching this. This is not the end all be all. There will have to be you know things that are put in place after November third, after election day, to get you know all the things that we want out of legalization. But it serves as a critical catalyst because there are experts who say that if we don't do it this time in New Jersey. It could be another five years yeah. before we get any type of movement on marijuana in New Jersey. And that's, you know, that's five more years of no revenue. That's five more years of people being arrested. That's five more years of incarceration. Like that's five more years of just devastation that we don't need. And frankly, like if we're truly a blue state, we should be, we should be past it. Should be ahead of this, <laughs> ahead of this issue. Our bodies are on the line next week. We have critical choices to make at the national level. We have critical people to vote for in New Jersey alone. You know, we have to keep the House and the Senate. 
So we have to vote down there. But let's go down and vote um, and vote for uh, the uh, legalization. Yes on, on on number one and no on number three. So uh, so thank you for uh, for taking the time, Imani, to be with me. And let's get it done next week. Let's get people out to vote. Let's get our progressive politics uh, uh, a chance after November 3rd. So I'll see you, I'll see you out there, Imani. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank you, and thank you for the platform you created for, for uh, progressive women to continue speaking truth to power. So thank you.